0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Jeff Voigt.
1: Welcome to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM 132. We're live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time. I'm Jeff Voigt, Principal of Medical Device Consultants of Ridgewood, a firm dedicated to evaluating the clinical and cost-effectiveness of medical technologies. I publish frequently on this topic in the peer-reviewed literature. I'm also an editor for one of the leading peer-reviewed cost-effectiveness journals. Lastly, I'm a 1985 graduate of the Wharton Healthcare Management Program. If you're interested in joining in the conversation today, please call us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. Today we'll be discussing end of life care. Are people dying in the, West, in the best way possible? Are patient and family caregiver wishes and goals granted? Is appropriate and affordable care provided? Are there unmet needs in end of life care? Is there such a thing as a good death? This is an especially relevant subject to me, as my family has elderly parents that are in the last phases of their lives. We've watched their health deteriorate and have have been engaged in discussions with other family caregivers on how the last portion of our parents' lives should be lived in order to make them feel happy and fulfilled. Our parents are fiercely independent people. We want to ensure they live and die with dignity and, as well, ensure their wishes are granted this means living the rest of their lives in familiar surroundings and with people they love. It's been a very difficult time for my parents, my wife's parents, and us. My guest today, Holly Priggerson, Ph.D. Dr. Priggerson is the Irving Sherwood Wright Professor of Geriatrics at Weill Cornell Medicine and Director of Cornell Center for Research on End-of-Life Care. Holly, welcome. You there? Sure to be here. Oh, good. Yes. Yes. Hi. yes. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Uh, my next guest uh, is Connie Ulrich, PhD. Dr. Ulrich is the Lil- Lillian S. Bruner Chair, a professor of nursing and a professor of bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine. Connie, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here.
1: Great. And then my final guest is Dr. Philip Pizzo. Dr. Pizzo is the David and Susan Heckerman Professor and founding director of the Stanford University Distinguished Careers Institute. Dr. Pizzo served as the dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine from April 2001 to December 2012, where he was also the Carl and Elizabeth Nauman Professor of Pediatrics and of Microbiology and Immunology. Dr. Pizzo co-chaired the National Academy of Medicine 2014 report on dying in America. Improving quality and honoring individual pres- preferences near the end of life I have to say that was one of the better reports. I've read in a long long time And I, I dr. Pizzo. I got to give you credit as the co-chair. You you really did a nice job with it So welcome
3: well, thank you very much for those
1: kind comments, okay So uh, just to start off. I'm going I'm to ask each of you to give me just a you know, like a one-minute elevator pitch on what you're doing Right now in, in your in your work and your research and Holly I'm going to start with you tell me a little bit about what's going on at Wild Cornell
4: uh, So, I direct the Cornell Center for Research on End of Life Care, uh, where we conduct studies of the factors that influence end of life care, patient quality of life, quality of death,
2: and family caregiver bereavement adjustment.
1: Okay, very good. And, Connie, tell me a little about what's going on at Uh, uh, at Penn.
2: Yes, hi. I am a nurse bioethicist here at Penn. And I was trained at NIH in bioethics. So my work here as a professor of bioethics in nursing, I think a lot about the bioethical challenges that nurses and physicians face, especially end-of-life, advanced care planning, those types of issues. So I teach both in the School of Nursing and in the School of Medicine, and I also conduct research associated with those issues.
1: Very good. Thank you. And Phil, tell me about what's going on at the Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute and and maybe some of the work you've done with end-of-life care.
3: Sure. Thank you very much. Well, of course, uh, I would say, unlike my two distinguished colleagues, I'm not really an expert in end-of-life care. I've had the opportunity to be part of it through my work as a pediatric oncologist um, over many uh, years, and of course, as you mentioned, uh, Jeff, working with the National Academy on its report and continuing efforts to this date. Right now, I'm focused on uh, individuals in midlife who are coming to Stanford as part of our program to. Uh, find ways of repurposing themselves, building community, and recalibrating uh, their wellness as a way of better aligning, if you will, the lifespan with the health span uh, in light of the changing demography of the world, which has relevance, of course, to how we think about life and end of life as well.
1: That sounds great. I got. I, I, I want to talk to you after about. It. I'm, I'm working with a startup on uh, this totally different subject, but I want to talk to you about some of the things we're doing. I want to see if there's any potential alignment that. Totally different subject, but let's sure. let, let's <laughs> let, let, let's get back to uh, so th- the first question I have is, um, and, and I'll throw it out to Holly first, um, and then I'll ask each of you to kind of weigh in on it. How is death perceived in our culture?
4: Uh, as something that is rarely accepted. So I, I've been studying dying patients for way too long, probably, mm. but uh, there are sort of alarming trends, even more recently, as, as uh, it, it sort of is, despite the growth of the palliative care movement and the field, uh, some of the breakthroughs have had sort of paradoxical effects on the perceptions of dying and death in America. So uh, we, we have done some studies of comparing death in the United States to elsewhere, and there is a reluctance to really truly believe that that with modern medicine, we can't stave off death with all the miracles that you hear and all the hype from big pharma. There's a tendency to think that maybe if if you wait long enough or with science and you hold out long enough that a miracle cure will, will arrive and save you. So there's a real reluctance to accept or hoist the white flag. It's almost seen as a defeat of the medical system to mm. acknowledge that there are limits to the lifespan and to embrace death as other cultures have.
1: Okay. And Connie, what do you think?
2: Yes, I'm shaking my head. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I agree with uh, what Holly said. Um, I think that Death is really a topic that's very difficult for many of us to discuss, especially with our loved ones, our relatives, our friends, our partners. It's really challenging. Um, although it really shouldn't be difficult to discuss, it, it, it just is. And for those of us who are physicians and, nursing, um, and nurses, you know, death and dying has been part of our work life. So we have seen it really up close and for personal. We've shared the sorrows with patients and families. Unfortunately, a- SROs or? Sorrows, the sadness. Oh. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, I'm mm-hmm, sorry. Yeah. With, uh. with patients and families. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, we tend not to have these discussions until we're, we're faced with an acute care crisis yeah. and or we have to make a decision for someone that might be chronically ill. Yeah. I'm really reminded there was a book in 2014 by Atul Gawande. He's a physician and a beautiful writer, and he uh, wrote a book entitled Being Mortal. And basically in that book he said that We have just become so medicalized that we can live longer and better, which we can, but we fail to have discussions on end of life. Mm -hmm. Maybe we've done too much. You know, the extraordinary has now become the ordinary, in a sense. And we are just alarmingly unprepared for it, and I think he's absolutely right. We're just not prepared Mm -hmm. to have these kinds of discussions.
3: Okay. And, Phil, uh, I love your perspective. Well, thank you very much, and and thanks to Holly and Connie for those very important comments. Uh, you know, I agree with uh, what has been stated already. You know, here, actually on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, it's probably uh, among the most flagrant examples where there are people literally thinking about how to kind of live forever, which I think is really, um, to be honest, a, a nonsensical approach to the human condition. Um, there's a lot of dissonance um, in this area. Uh, I'm really glad that Connie referenced Atul Gawande's, um book because I do uh, take note of the fact that when that book came out, it became a bestseller. Uh, Many people were reading it and gave evidence to the fact that uh, there are many individuals in our community and globally who are thinking about the reality of death as a part of life. Um, But I think that there is also a lot of duplicity in how we approach it. You know, for example, if you... Uh, ask physicians about end-of-life care and I bet nurses and other health professionals would have the same reaction they are very clear about how they want their end-of-life to occur and it's not in a hospital and it's not with life support systems Um, and yet Um, They also perpetuate these very practices in the patients they care for. So there's lots of um, room for continued growth here. The Conversations Project, the need to speak about this um, through the life journey is just such an important um, part of what we are uh, having to do, and I'm sure will be a pretty important part of our discussion this morning. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I I agree. Um,
1: uh, to
4: follow up on, on Phil's comment, we actually did a study comparing how physicians die this, to, this others, is Holly, right? to lawyers. Yes. 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 Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, we, we published that in JAMA in 2016, a study that compared <clears throat> whether uh, lawyers, physicians, all all professions, teachers. We compared every occupation and how it on the intensity of care that they received in the last six months of their life. And physicians, notably, had significantly less intensive care at the end of life compared to other other occupations. And so, so what does so, that say to you? It, that they know what uh, lay people often don't know—that uh, more is often less—and mm-hmm. that there comes a time when med- medicine, the best thing medicine can do, is say maybe you should spend quality time with your with your family and not be in pain instead of trying to uh do whatever we can to make you eke out uh, a few more days
1: okay uh phil i'm gonna i'm gonna touch on a comment you made a couple of years ago in the annals of internal medicine mm-hmm. and, and the comment you made uh, which I found very very interesting is that you said as a nation, we do a disappointingly poor job of delivering seamless compassionate care that honors the individual preferences of those nearing the end of their life. Um, you know it's it 's quite an indictment on the health care system and and mm-hmm. i I guess my question to you is, do you still believe that 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 's true i mean have we have we made good have we made strides or is it still something that yeah. we, 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 we're having a tough time getting our hands around
3: well, you know I think it 's very much in the public forum of debate mm-hmm. you know in terms of our health care system, which I think is still indictable uh, unfortunately yeah. uh when you look at american health care uh, which is as we all know the most costly system in the world, and it's not really a system of care. Um, it's very fragmented, more specialists than primary care physicians, and a greater need for other providers, particularly nurses, social workers, and others who are really focusing on the holistic approach to, um, if you will, life care. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not the way our healthcare care system based still on its fee-for-service model, has really evolved and and developed. And so I think that um, many people, not just when they're facing end-of-life care, but also when they're facing the care of a chronic illness, um, find themselves really between specialists without any real coordination. And I think that's one of the really tragic parts of what takes place. And then it becomes further actualized when you get toward the later stages of life when, you know, even access to care, who you call when you have a need um, becomes not well defined, which is what leads to many people calling for emergency services and Mm -hmm. really stepping back in terms of the quality of the care that they receive.
1: Okay, so if we look at kind of the general gestalt of where, where, where people unfortunately are dying, what 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 types of care is being delivered, and in what settings are they are uh, they uh, commonly um, um, dying in? Um, Connie, would you want, want to weigh in on sure, this? Or, sure. Sure. Yeah.
2: Well, I, let me just start by saying, you know, my hope is my hope is that you know physicians, nurses, and other types of providers that we are very caring, we're compassionate and we are capable in the care of those who are dying. But I think that's variable. Um, You know, that depends on the institutional setting. It depends on the geographical location in which you live it Mm -hmm. certainly might depend on the type of provider uh, that you're seeing. And I think, as Philip said, the transitions that might occur amongst those many different types of setting. As I said to you, my mother-in-law recently passed away. She had lived independently in her home, but she had to be transitioned to a nursing home um, for her care and then transitioned to a hospital. So I think generally those who are dying, uh, it can be within a hospital, acute care setting. It can be within a long. Care institution; it can be an inpatient hospice, an outpatient hospice, and/or the home. So it really is variable.
1: Holly, um, I know you looked at this probably fairly carefully. Um, mm-hmm. What are you finding?
4: Well, w- one of the things that we're finding is I, there have been increases that have stabilized in, in for example, the deaths in the ICU. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. about a third of patients uh, die spend. Uh, the, their last 30 days of life in the ICU, and we've done studies within the ICU and asking nurses, asking the, the family members who have survived them and critical care doctors about what that death looked like, and it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, we, we asked nurses, to what extent would you say the patient that you care, cared for in that last week of life in the ICU was in a state worse than death? And, we, and the answer is about 80%.
5: Yes. Them,
4: oh. uh, would if if you were the patient, would you have wanted to die sooner? Eighty percent said yes. Uh, so it's really what people don't understand, and particularly lay people, including me, if just a few years ago, before I started examining ICU deaths, and why, in a study that we did, patients who who died in the ICU had a sevenfold increase in their risk of of the of their family member having post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, a few months after the uh, witnessing that death, yeah. so the, what what lay people think is that you 'll get better care in the intensive care unit, and people who are on the front lines of, of that care realize the best thing you can do is not be there well so and so,
1: so yeah, yeah, so my question is so so why, why is that happening what 's going well, on with that dynamic oh, who 's making the decisions with that and i 'm going to ask you and Phil to kind of weigh in on this. And, and as well, Connie. So please, uh, please go ahead. Well,
4: for for we we have studied this, and I studied cancer patients. So m- almost all my conclusions sh- should be generalized only to cancer patients. Uh, in that, with the despite the growth of palliative care services, which the uptake has been tremendous, and hospice services, about forty five percent of p- people do die getting some hospice care.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: But despite that. Uh, especially in the cancer realm, the increase in patients getting more and more aggressive care. So, for example, in our coping with cancer studies, we found that over 80% of patients within three months of dying were still getting chemotherapy, what they call palliative chemotherapy. It's not intended to cure them what what that was associated with in a publication we had in BMJ in 2014 was a significantly increased risk of dying in, in an ICU
5: mm-hmm.
4: because there are complications when you when you treat cancer patients to the very very end with very toxic uh, agents there's there are complications adverse events side effects and it's not it's not the, there was in our studies in cancer patients who got palliative chemotherapy, there was no survival advantage, so it wasn 't oh. as if it it helped uh, eke out a longer life for the patients that we studied, but it was associated with a hugely significant uh, risk for ICU deaths and for complications and worse quality of life and quality of death so right. the trend seems to be the more things are offered, the more you know, if you build it, people will come. If you make this drug for dying patients, they will use it. Mm -hmm. And the consequence has been increasingly aggressive, toxic end-of-life care, which results in more intensive care at the end of life. So,
1: Phil, I want you to weigh in on this, please. Yeah. Yeah. uh,
3: Well, I think Holly's um, comments and, in fact, her work speak really well to this issue. You know, I come at it actually from the point of view of um, two things. One of them is having been an oncologist for my career um, in this case pediatric oncologist and you know having witnessed from the early days of cancer treatment you know all the mortalities that occurred um, which have really been significantly improved over the decades because of treatments that have now made childhood cancer almost curable as compared to where it was when I first got started but along the way um, you know it became imperative um, for us to speak with in our case parents about the prospect of death from the beginning of the intervention of treatment, which I think is really an important um, point. Can I can I, can, I, can I,
1: just, I'm sorry, I cut you off. I, so when you say beginning of treatment, th- that, that is no. even before you think At, they're going to die?
3: Yes, absolutely. So as you know, when you're mm. sitting down and talking with a person, whether it's an adult or child, I think it's important to introduce um, the prospect that the treatment may not work um, and that there may come a time when one needs to think about what are the, if you will, the individual preferences for how the end of life will be thought about and approach because if you don't do that you wind up with very much the kind of slippery slope that has already been described in which a couple of things happen. One is Physicians may feel that they're taking hope away um, from their patient by not offering more therapy. Um, This is a common feature in oncology, and as Holly has described already, is not supported by the data. Um, It doesn't help people um, to do that. I think a big feature of this, which I want to introduce for more discussion as we proceed, is that having these discussions, physicians, nurses, others with patients, adults, and children takes time. And our healthcare system conspires against time. It doesn't allow us to sit down and really engage in these really important dialogues because they intrude upon um, the need to move on to the next thing, and they also fly in the face of the kind of if you do services, provide more treatment, offer more services, even to the intensive care mm-hmm. system. The healthcare system is actually profiting from that, making money because of the way the health care payment systems are aligned. As compared to what happens if you decrease the amount of support, you know, or simply talk with people about what they'd like to receive versus not. So you're not just backing into it; you're being thoughtful yeah. and um, respectful and treating people with dignity. That, that, that,
1: that is a uh, an important concept about taking time. I want to do. I do want to talk about that probably in you know the next 20 25 minutes. Sure. And it's I think it's one of the more important concepts that uh, I think uh, providers need to take into account. I? I could just, I just one quick, one quick reset and then we'll get back into this. Guy. <laughs> so, I'm Jeff White and you're listening to the Business of Healthcare on SiriusXM 132. We're talking today about end of life care, and my guests today are Holly Priggerson from Cornell, Connie Ulrich from Penn, and Dr. Philip Pizzo uh, from Stanford University. So, um, I cut you guys off, and I'm sorry, Connie. you had okay. something to say, and let's let's let thank me, you no, yeah.
2: I just wanted to make a comment back to um holly's study and Holly's work about nurses at end of life and uh the stress associated with end of life and I think we forget sometimes that this stress affects clinicians as well. When we're not making decisions at end of life, the physician is not making a decision, the nurse might not be communicating to the patient and family, it creates tremendous stress and burden. We call that moral distress for nurses and physicians, and therefore that distress can lead to a loss of really qualified people. Mm -hmm. And so we lose these people, which we absolutely need within the healthcare system, and it's very damaging.
1: Got it. Okay, so I want want to back up uh, just a couple of... I want to define a couple of terms here so the audience is clear. Uh, So first of all, what is palliative care? Um, Phil?
3: Sure. Well, palliative care is actually an emerging specialty which began a couple of decades ago, which provides um, care by various providers, physicians, nurses, social workers, others, um, to individuals who are not imminently facing death, but who need supportive care during the course of a chronic illness, which could take them all the way up through um, the actual end of life. Um, There's a lot of confusion in our community about palliative care versus hospice care. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of reaction to hospice care for reasons that we've been talking about already, because of the concerns that that basically limits your ability to get other treatments, palliative care does not, um, or that it basically describes you as someone who's imminently dying. And that what that means in actuality is that the utilization of hospice care in this country is remarkably low. Mm. In fact, the average amount of time that individuals spend in hospice care is about eight days, And I think that speaks quite um, significantly to the perception that um, providers and um, patients have about entering into hospice care, in essence, giving up. Um, the alternative is palliative care. Um, is not giving up. It's really receiving supportive care. And in fact, the research data um, supports that um, palliative care not only improves the quality of life, but actually, in some modest ways, improves the quantity of life as well.
1: Yeah. So it, it's it's managing the illness. So you, obviously, you're not making it better, right. but but you're, you're you're managing the patient's condition, so they do have That's a good right. quality. Okay. Good. That's
3: right. And it's an important adjunctive supportive. Service. And I think one of the things that we should talk about as well is that palliative care should not um, relieve physicians or nurses um, who are not the palliative care specialists from staying engaged with patients during these really important parts of their life journey.
1: Got it. So if you're interested in calling in to join uh, to join in the conversation, please call in at one 844 That's one 844 942 Seven eight six six. I also want to talk about the concept of advanced care planning, and I'm, I'm going to throw that out. Um, Connie, would you like to take that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Hey, I'm yeah. Ha-
2: happy to take that, but yeah. I just want to also just um, reiterate what uh, Philip said is that you know, palliative care does not alter the quality of care that is delivered to the patient. They still will, will receive quality of care yep. from their physicians and nurses. I think there's a misperception, you know, as Philip said about what palliative care is. It is meant to alleviate suffering and improve quality of life, and it's for any patient that wishes to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, advanced, advanced, care care planning. Planning. yes. Yeah. advanced care planning. Yes, advanced care planning is a process yeah. um, similar to palliative care. Um, in 1991, the Patient Self Determination Act uh, was passed by the U.S. Congress, and that required healthcare care institutions um, that received Medicare and Medicaid funding to ask patients about advanced directives. And an advanced directive is your express wish about what you might want for end of life. So do you want to be on a breathing tube, for example? Do you want to be resuscitated? Do you want antibiotics or Mm -hmm. um, dialysis, those types of things? But advanced care planning is much more than just an advanced directive. It is a process of having an advanced directive, but it's also a process of asking about your illness. Do you understand your illness trajectory, for example? What are your treatment goals? Um, those kinds of issues. What are your decision-making preferences? Do you want your family, for example, to support you or help you in those types of decisions? So it's a process along that illness trajectory, right. not a one-time event.
1: Got it. So, Holly, when, when should that start, advanced care planning, with, with patients who you know are going to die?
2: Well, I think
4: there's, there's a push in the palliative care community to have it as early as possible, even including uh, when when people get their driver's license, but I think that that's been a little bit of of an overreach, and I think the the time in cancer care has really been uh, at the time of diagnosis. So the, there are pros and cons of of having these conversations too early and too late. Uh-huh. Too late, patients uh, oftentimes aren't even conscious to engage in informed decision making at that time. Too early. Uh, patients and families sort of dismiss it, and and hypothetical situations don't seem real, and and their preferences change as, as we've we've studied this. As, as patients get sicker and they become more symptomatic, they're more uh, favorably disposed to palliative care than when they're feeling healthy. Right. So uh, it's important to start the process before there is a medical crisis, and when people can think rationally about what they might want if their health were to deteriorate and deteriorate dramatically. Um, all that aside, all the uh, academic stuff aside, I, I, I consider myself an expert in this area, and my mom, who's 85 years old, said my, she's in an assisted living community, and, and last weekend said, uh, I was told I should complete the most so I'm like, oh, all right. If you want to do that, let's let's do that uh, before dinner. Mm-hmm. We sat down, and she she started asking me very pointed questions that I actually couldn't answer, and mm-hmm. and it was it surprised me that you can study something
5: mm-hmm.
4: academically for so long, and then then the question was, wait. So I it, it, her question to me was, um, if. If I have a heart attack, you're not going to resuscitate me, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it, it's the, as we started going through all the CPR, DNR, check this box, check. She's like, so why wouldn't you resuscitate me? And it, <laughs> and the party line in my research was like, you know, I'm like, mom, the party line is, first of all, uh, you, you'll be unconscious if if you're if I'm the person making this decision for you, I'm her healthcare proxy yep. that um, she won't be. She won't be conscious, she won't be able to make, she'll she'll probably be in a very, very close to death, and that her heart has stopped or her lungs have stopped working. Right. So it's really not as if it's going to save her to a a, a healthy future, it's really that she's dying and we will do something very dramatic to try to oh. save her at that moment, but the consequences aren't going to be good. Yes. But so- it still led me to question even that, like, well... Who would who – so the reluctance to sign off became – just became very real uh, when you're asked, like what are we really asking people to do? And I think that these forms that I've been advocating for for so long suddenly seemed unfair, unfair mm-hmm. to ask patients and families to – without adequate explanation or in, information, why should they sign off on being resuscitated without knowing the consequences of it. So I I Uh, actually think that we have more work to do in Mm -hmm. informing um, patients and family members about what we're asking them to do with advanced care planning and advanced directives.
1: I I do want to catch up on a little bit about this uh, end of of life and and, um, uh, care and talking with patients. And Phil, I uh, I left you with a question before. (laughs) And I want to talk to you a little bit about, even though you have these conversations, sometimes patients and families don't don't understand or don't get it. I mean, what what happens in those uh, in those dynamics? What what do you do?
3: Sure. Well, I want to, as I answer that question, just hearken back a little bit uh, as a prelude to a point that Holly made, uh, which is when do you begin introducing uh, these comments and questions? And you know, in our NAM report, National Academy report, we actually did say that it's important to have them through the life journey, not because we think that. Uh, individuals, we as uh, individuals will uh, have serious discussions about the end of our life when we're in our 20s or 30s or 40s, although clearly death can occur during those periods of time, but because they begin to familiarize us with some of the important issues and questions and thoughts that we need to put into this. I think that To answer your question, Jeff, more directly, um, I I see this as a physician who spent lots of time um, having these kinds of discussions with parents and with adults and with children, in fact, that it has to be highly individualized, that it's you can't approach this in a formulaic way. One has to provide the time, sit down, understand the social dynamics of the family and the patient, if you will, understand um, where they're coming from their psychological um, state in terms of how they're thinking about this, and to listen carefully and then respond thoughtfully um, and compassionately to the issues and concerns that they're expressing. Uh-huh. Without the listening part, without taking the time to do it um, and then responding to all the concerns, uh, just as you know Holly described in the case of her mom, um, you won't be able to really address these issues. There's no form that you could fill out or um, a set of questions you can answer that obviate the need for a thoughtful conversation, which ultimately needs to be embracing beyond the individual, and in my case the parents, to include other family members to help support um, those facing these really important issues.
1: Got it. So we do have a call from Karen in the Bahamas, and I'm hoping we can take that. Karen, are you there?
0: Yes, I am. Thank you. Yes. Thank you all for participating in this critical conversation. So, in my experience, both with elderly parents and with friends' parents and going through end-of-life decisions, I find that it's often the providers themselves who, who, who feel they don't need to read until Gawande's book. You know, we live this every day, we know this. And when I've pushed even a very close relative to read it, it's been mind-opening. So my question to, to the panel is, what is being done in the curricula of medical schools? To educate future providers and nursing schools, future providers as to as to this discussion, and really mm-hmm. open up the minds early on to yeah. what's going on in this field. So I do I'm, have a nephew who just completed medical school and doesn't feel he's been exposed to this at all.
1: Interesting. So I'm going to ask Connie first from a nursing standpoint, and, sure. then, I'm to, and then I'll ask Connie. I'll ask Holly and Phil to in,
0: please.
2: Well, thank you, Karen, yeah. for your question. It's really a terrific question and one that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, I, as I said, I am a nurse bioethicist, so I teach a bioethics course um, in the School of Nursing and also in the School of Medicine. Um, and I'm very fortunate to teach in the School of Medicine because I think sometimes having a nurse uh, discuss issues with them, they can see it from a different perspective, and I can also learn from them you know, where their issues and concerns are. But you're absolutely right. We have to do so much more work to try to have broader conversations. I think having the conversation in the classroom is one way to provide a safe environment, to bring up issues that might be conflictual or might be a, uh, cause an impasse with families at end of life, and then they w- are able to go into the clinical arena to have that discussion. In some of the research that I have done, it's really interesting, I have found that about 23% of nurses have no ethics education at all, which is really troubling because we found that by having no ethics education, they felt very powerless, they felt that they could not take moral action, and they felt as though the ethical issues were very extreme. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, I'm very fortunate to be at Penn where ethics education is a priority, but that's not the case at every other institution across the country.
1: Yeah. Holly?
2: Yeah. Um, well, we, we studied different aspects
4: of, of communication, and one, uh, again, among cancer patients and oncologists. And we published something uh, last year where we could we we had patients before and after a restaging scan, so cancer patients are scanned all the time to see if the tumors are growing. And what we found was just having an oncologist in the room increased the patient and the family member's understanding of their prognosis uh, threefold. And then we compared it to fellows, oncology fellows, and to nurses, and to palliative care docs. And... People, This is a very unpopular finding, but the fellows were the worst. The fellows actually, the pre-post understanding of patients <clears throat> went down when they had met with a fellow. <clears throat> so clearly there's not enough uh, education about how to communicate well with patients so that they can understand their prognosis better. And we're actually taking steps to improve medical communication because we have a, a, a new project where... We, when we listened to the audio tapes of these scanned discussions, we found so much medical gibberish was communicated about size of tumors and discounting of information and medical ease that even though several of us had PhDs or were physicians, we had trouble understanding what what the oncologist was really trying to communicate anyway. So Mm
5: -hmm.
4: what we're trying to do is say, you know, even with informed consent, I know that there's a move to have uh, uh, an eighth grade reading level and use shorter sentences and try to have physicians communicate in a way that patients and family members can understand better, but we don't think it's about what we've shown is it's really really less about uh, literacy and language and more about communicating in in ways that patients can understand what what physicians are saying. So it. it what so one one very quick and dirty phrase that oncologists have found acceptable to use that has totally sh- changed the perspective of of the patients has been months not years. That you, we think based on uh, patients in your situation are our best guess is you will likely have months not years left to live, mm-hmm. and that changes the whole dynamic because then mm-hmm. it 's not about trying the, the latest immunotherapy uh, for someone who's failed on, on one line of, of an immunotherapy mm-hmm. so I think that there can be there's a lot of room for improvement and a need for improvement in communicating not just more simply and with uh, shorter phrases and simpler words but more taking uh, as I I consider myself sort of a a patient advocate, from a patient's perspective, I think physicians need to learn how to communicate in ways that if they were the patient, they would understand.
3: So Phil, I'll ask you to weigh in. Sure, absolutely, well thanks for those comments and and for the question as well. I, I think that this is a much broader issue than just end of life discussions. Physician communications in particular are Largely lacking and need tremendous amount of um, advanced support, if you will. In fact, in in the uh, report that we did for the National Academy, uh, the importance of better education for all healthcare providers about how to engage in meaningful content-related conversations is an imperative. And your mm-hmm. caller is absolutely correct. This is not sufficiently exercised during the curriculum during medical. Um, school or in nursing schools, we've heard, but it's not simply for those periods of time. This is the kind of um, conversation or education that needs to transcend any one part of, if you will, the broader aspects of medical education. It takes place, should take place in medical school, during residency training, during fellowship training, and when one is an active pr- practitioner. Um, using an oncologist, by the way, Holly, as the standard, I don't think you're doing this, this is what you study. Is not to me the high bar uh, because oncologists um, ha- are not, and I'm one of them, um, doing this kind of job that they should be doing that would put them at the top. Uh, the latter in terms of excellence in this. So there's a, a broad need for improvement. And what it comes back to is um, the need for all of us to learn how to understand the people, the individuals we are speaking of to use language, which is understandable and meaningful to take the time to do it in, in a way that really is, um, is engaging. And I think uh, the way that we um, recommended doing this was number one by Of course, mandating that there be changes in the education system and that there be um, criteria for defining how well that is going and for also building in criteria to make sure that these kinds of conversations are happening um, during the uh, medical interactive processes through certifying exams, accreditation. There need to be uh, better uh, qualifiers to make sure that uh, our words are actually met by action.
1: Right, so Karen, thank you so much uh, from call, for calling in. Um, you can call in at one one eight four four Wharton, one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, and I encourage you to call in. Uh, I, I want <clears throat> to. We have a whole bunch of stuff we need. To, we can go through today, but I want. I want to get to the. Um, I want to get to the, the bereaved family members, and talk a little bit about. Um, from their perspective and what your, you know, what your understanding and findings are as it relates to uh, some of the concerns that they may have in this process. Um, I know, Holly, you you found um, uh, in one of your studies, you found a compelling need to address the peritraumatic stress and grief of caregivers, Um, and and I I wanted to ask you what, what that was about, I can?
4: Yeah, so actually Phil brought up the psychological aspects of uh, end-of-life discussions and I really appreciate that because what there, there was a study in JAMA in 2016 I believe that showed that a palliative care intervention in the ICU for family members actually ended up backfiring and increasing the rates of PTSD in the surviving bereaved family members. So what we started examining that and what, one one situation that's common that, that that we're studying is advanced cancer patients in the ICU, and their family members are struggling tr- treme- with tremendous. We just looked at our data the tremendously high rates of peritraumatic stress. It's not post-traumatic stress because it's not after the the event. They're they're in the middle of it, and mm-hmm. they don't. These family members don't really. Understand if their their loved ones dying, they don't understand what's going on, and they're not adequately they they realize that staff are there asking for the signing of a DNR order. They don't understand what what's really happening. So we've we've developed an intervention to help address this. Uh, first, first off, this notion of I don't want to sound too psychobabbly, but it's called experiential avoidance, and. One of the main psychological barriers that we've studied and found uh, for family members and patients at the end of life that impairs the ability to engage in advanced care planning is 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 avoidance and mm-hmm. denial. And psychological, a lot of what happens at the end of life is really driven by a lot of psycho psychological and psychosocial processes, and a leading one is denial. Huh. So no one wants to you know the elephant in the room is that the patient's dying and no one wants to say it and no one wants to address what that might mean for the family member there but so what so what we're what we're doing in our empower intervention is we're we're not encouraging patients or family members to do one thing or another but what we're trying to do is have them first recognize what's happening. And when, when someone really is dying, it's helpful to the family member to to, to say what, what's truly happening and not deny it and not um, mm-hmm. come up with other ex- explanations for what's happening. Uh-huh. And that helps them to start to think about what they might need to do and to prepare.
5: Right.
4: And we've shown that family members that, A, prepare and come to accept what's truly happening to their loved one do much, much better in planning effectively. The patient ends up getting less aggressive, burdensome care, and they're exposed to less of, of that kind of care and, and the quality of life impairments associated with it. And both both factors help with the bereavement adjustment of the surviving family member. So mm-hmm. uh, th- there are a lot of things going on. There are a lot of family dynamics. There's family conflicts. One mm-hmm. Some people may want one one type of care, some... There, there's, a lo- there's a lot going on, <laughs> Yeah. But so one it, of the things that we found is, is talking about it and addressing it directly is, is probably the best way for, for the family members. Uh,
1: I, I want to touch on a couple of other issues that uh, I think bereaved family members m- m- may um, incur as they're going through this process. One of them that has been found is they feel there's a lack of emotional support. From uh, mm-hmm. only not only the caregivers, um, they uh, they don't have any kind. They're not understanding what the medical decisions are, and and um and, and in some respects, they feel like their dying family members not being treated with respect. I, I want to touch on those three things, Phil. Um, did, have have you found a, any of that yeah. in in uh,
3: absolutely? Yeah. And um, I, I think two things I would say. One, and Holly mentioned it toward the end. There is not infrequently. A lot of conflict within families in terms of preferences that different members of the family might wish to see for the patient and that is something that one has to address both as it's happening and then as I'll come to in a second really think about afterwards and the second part of that is there are unfortunate assumptions that sometimes occur uh, that um, some members of if you will the family are whom you talk to and others not And I had this experience um, years ago as a a care provider, a pediatric care provider, where I made an error that I think many physicians do, which is to say to, in this case, a child, a sibling of the person who, the patient who died, you know, you need to be strong for your Mm
5: -hmm. parents.
3: And I think the devastating impact of those kinds of statements is they fail to acknowledge that everybody, whether you're a parent or a sister or a sibling or uh, feels this deeply, and that one needs to think completely about approaching everyone comprehensively and thoughtfully. Got the it. second part is that we found over many years of experience that it's very helpful to bring or offer to bring families back for a discussion after um, Mm -hmm. the death has occurred, within a month, within six Mm -hmm. months to, if you will, do a review and a Mm re-engagement so that some of the lingering questions that never got answered Um, Can be approached and resolved. Yeah. a
2: good idea. Connie, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think everything that has been said is absolutely true. I I do think we need to think about, you know, how are we treating that family? You Mm -hmm. know, are we supporting Mm -hmm. them? Are we providing resources? Are we um, accurately monitoring their child or their loved one? You know, what are the issues that. Uh, they're facing that we need to address. Are we listening to them? And I think sometimes, mm-hmm. Philip's right, there is conflict at end of life. It can be within the family, but it also can be w- between the team and the family. And so I think we need to think about what resources are available to help mm-hmm. mitigate those conflicts. And mm-hmm. I say that from a bioethical perspective because most hospitals have ethics consultation teams. You and know. sometimes that might be very helpful in addressing whatever that ethical issue might be at end of life and to help to alleviate that conflict.
1: So, can I ask you? Uh, I mean, is this is this necessarily part of the advanced care planning kind of protocol or, or no i mean is not getting, necessarily it isn't okay no. should it be i i'm i'm asking all three of you should should this be part of advanced care planning is not only taking care of the patient but taking care of their family members absolutely. oh absolutely yeah, oh, well, no, yeah. Absolutely. no 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 but but being part of that protocol though is th- this is something that needs to be yeah. addressed let me Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, so we have a couple minutes left, and I'm going to ask a very odd question uh, of all three of and I want to get your perspectives on this. Um, is there a definition of a of a good death? Uh, and if yes, what what would that be? What what kind of a, a death would be um, in your mind? I mean, you guys live this, mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, uh, see it on a frequent basis. Um, what's the definition of a, of, a, of a good death, um, Holly?
4: well uh, well we we did a as, as all my answers seem to be prefaced by we did a study of this <laughs> what what are the the fat, what predicts a good quality of death so yep. we had family members evaluate the quality of the care uh, of the patient who died and and the, there were some some obvious uh so we got the top the top 10 okay. top 10 predictors of a good quality of death and it was unsurprising that things like avoiding hospitalizations and intensive care use and chemotherapy were a, among the, the top predictors of what was associated with a better quality of life in the last week of life. Right. But then there were some surprises. And among, so we have hundreds of all these types of fact, patient-provider relationships, all sorts of variables. And what made the top 10 were feeling less worried Mm-hmm. Uh, the patient feeling less worried, mm-hmm. praying and meditating at, at our baseline assessment four months before was one of the best predictors, mm-hmm. whether a pastor visited them in the hospital or clinic. Mm-hmm. And finally, the, the biggest surprise was the therapeutic alliance, their sense that their doctors had their back mm-hmm. and uh, understood what they wanted. So When you say, uh,
1: when you say have I, their back, do you, do you mean they're there for them? In, in other words, they're there through the, the process. The,
4: of, of of they, their death that they not only uh are 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 knowledgeable and respectful uh those those were important but in it in in psychology the therapeutic bond is really about empathy and feeling like they understand where you're coming from and what your needs and values are right. so that uh they can make the type of death that you would want if if you could choose possible okay so that just having have feeling like your your doctor's not pushing things on you that you wouldn't want for other other reasons Mm -hmm. um and that they're there to support i think we've mentioned this in this conversation uh, to support you emotionally all right Mm -hmm. so
1: we have about a a minute and a half left and i'm going to ask uh uh, 30 seconds left uh phil and connie to weigh in on is there a definition of of a good death phil
3: well, I think um, Holly did a great job in, in articulating that. You know, I think it's a question that we should probably each ask ourselves in terms of how we would like to die. And my guess is that many of the features that Holly spoke to would be very much part of what we would consider um, to be a good death. And then we need to ask ourselves, why aren't we championing that or assuring that for those who we were caring for? With one other caveat, and that mm-hmm. is that oftentimes when we talk about this, as we've been speaking about today, it suggests limiting things rather than doing more. And I think one of the important points, certainly of our NAM report, was that we need to know what people want and not preclude the fact that some people want less more comfort and others want more mm-hmm. and making sure we understand that um, within the broader context of their kind of biopsychosocial dynamic is really important.
1: Okay and Connie, you yes, had the last I, word. Yes,
2: I agree with what yeah. everyone has said. To, to me, a good death would be one that recognizes and meets the patient and family's preferences and goals, yeah. that we would ethically respect their right uh, to make decisions and that we would be open and honest as healthcare providers um, about end of life and the dying process.
1: Got it. So you've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM One Thirty Two. I'm Jeff Voigt, uh, one of the hosts of the Business of Healthcare. We had a discussion today, a very good discussion, and we could probably talk more about this. And I may invite you guys back if that's okay on on dying in America. My guests today were Connie Ulrich from Penn. Uh, Holly Prigerson from Cornell and Dr. Philip Pizzo from Stanford. Uh, this program will be will be replayed several times during the week on Thursday, Friday, and uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week. If you have any questions or ideas for a segment, please call or write us uh, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you have a great day.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.